Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ace Couple Podcast. My name is Courtney. I am here with my spouse, Royce, and right off the bat, I am gonna say today is gonna be uh, quite upsetting, so do something kind for yourself. Make Make a little cup of tea, draw yourself a bubble bath, do whatever you gotta do, because we are coming at you with another horribly, horribly bigoted article, Um, and it's sure to make your blood boil. So let's get to it, why don't we? So I've picked through this article a little bit. Most of this is going to be complete news to you, Royce, so I'm going to read you some of the, I guess, some of the worst excerpts. None of this is good. None of this is good at all. This is very much going to be sort of along the same lines. We we covered an article a while back by Rod Little attacking asexuality. This is very much along the same lines, although this is written by one Ms. Kat Rosenfield. <laughs> but just 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 get a load of this title. This this is how we know we're really gonna be in for a ride. The title of this op-ed is called Demisexuals are scared of sex. Good start. With the subheading, Desire has been purged from modern dating. Which is that very alarmist thing we start to see. So right off the bat, I'm reading that and I'm starting to think this is going to easily transition into all the talking points that are very like, Oh no, young people aren't having enough sex! (laughs) Just this very, like, fear-mongering, very weird anxiety that people have about <laughs> asexuals. And just young people in general. It's it's very weird for older people to be that involved in a different generation's daily activities. Well, you, you first of all, like, generations are bullshit, by the way. The, the, <laughs> the lines between them are arbitrary. But there, there has always been juvenoia where older generations, older people are going to look down upon the younger generation, the kids these days. And I mean, I feel like we've just, as of the last few years, gotten out of millennials being the main target in the line of fire. And now you're starting to see more like, oh, those Gen Zs, those Gen Zers out there. So if you're a member of Generation Z and you're listening to this podcast right now, good luck. <laughs> you you have a, a good decade or so of stupid comments on the news coming at you. Oh my gosh, you're, you're literally going to be the younger generation like until you're 40. <laughs> so very much in line with the curmudgeonly older generation looking down on the young ones. The very first paragraph of this article starts with, For the 10 years leading up to 2019, I was the author of a teen advice column, and my agony aunt inbox was often an early warning system for whatever youth-driven phenomenon was on its way down the cultural pike. This is why I knew what, quote, in quotes, demisexual was all the way back in 2013. You can already tell that this is someone who has uh, no right running a teen advice column. <laughs> it sounds like she has outright hostility toward teenagers writing in. Like, 
my inbox for people seeking advice from me as an older person was a warning system for youth driven phenomena. It it baffles me how Plus you're you're calling an orientation a youth driven phenomena that kind of shows you don't get it. It's it's the conservative argument that no one in history was queer, like queer is a modern invention sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> I just heard about demisexuality a few days ago, read the first letter I received on the topic. When I read the description of it, I thought to myself, that is definitely me. Wow. I feel so bad for this poor person who wrote into this particular advice column. Honestly. Don't write into advice columns. Don't write into advice columns. <laughs> I, the thing is, when it's something that's more broad and vague, like you've got... Your your mismanners, you've got your, I guess in her case it was agony aunt. You've got these just sort of partially anonymous personas that are setting themselves up to be an expert on something. You have no idea who is on the other end of it and, and how they actually feel about things. And in this case, this was absolutely not the person to talk to about demisexuality. It might be a little bit different if... You're writing into a very specific column that's about a very specific topic. But even then, I, I've i gotten so much more cynical about advice just over the years in general. And I found myself, even when I was young, even when I was a child, I often found myself being someone that people came to for advice. And I would always try to give advice when and where I could. And I appreciated that people valued my opinion enough to ask. But... The older I get, the wiser I become, the more I learn, the more I realize that unless you actually know the person seeking advice very, very well, it's very easy for advice to become more harmful than helpful. Because there are just so many other factors that you just may not have all the details about. Someone might be talking about sexuality, for example. They might be seeking advice from someone who is queer, who is older than them. And you might think, you know, two queer people probably have enough in common. You can probably share advice. And in, in some cases that can be true, but there are so many other intersectional identities like disability, like being a person of color, what country you live in, whether or not you're religious or whether or not the people around you are religious and what religion at that. And there are just so many little nuances that unless you know the person and you know those nuances and you can relate to them in some way or you're educated on them, you can miss a lot of really important details. And that's when advice starts getting a little too vague, a little too broad, a little too almost like, sometimes it almost feels like inspiration porn. Like you, you try to leave it off on a really positive note if you're giving someone advice on, on a column like this. But... It's not a lot of real detailed practical information. It's just a lot of like feel good fluff sometimes. <laughs> and it can feel good in the moment, but as far as actual practical advice, it's normally very, very lacking. So that's why even when people ask me for advice, I normally try to say I am not the advice giving type because I don't know your life. I don't know the nuances of your life, but I'm happy to share stories from my life that may or may not be applicable, but... This this Kat Rosenfield, let's, let's go to this article that she's citing, because first of all, even if you don't understand demisexuality, even if you don't understand anything on the asexual spectrum, 
how are you going to come into someone saying like, I read about this thing and I thought to myself, that is definitely me. Wow. How are you not going to see that as a positive thing, even if you don't understand what the thing is? Like, to me, understanding more about yourself and being able to relate to something that you read or learned about is inherently positive. <laughs> that is a good thing to know more about yourself. So this article starts, Dear Auntie, you know, honestly, that's another thing that really bothers me. A lot of these advice columns use something like, oh, I'm your cool aunt, and it almost inherently has a built-in, like, forced parasocial relationship in it, even before you ask them for advice. Because if you're reading the column and you're calling them auntie... Yeah, they're trying to work the close family member, reliable connection sort of angle. Yeah, and I don't like it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it. But essentially this person says, you know, I thought that's definitely me. Wow. But then I also thought, I thought everyone was this way. And some people are saying it's people trying to be, quote, special snowflakes by putting a label on this kind of attraction. So I'm just trying to figure it out right now before I claim to be demisexual, because there's always the chance that I'm not. Do you think you can help me out with this a bit? Is demisexuality even a thing? Because I thought everyone was this way. Which, I think demisexuality has a special place there of a wide variety of people misunderstanding what it actually is, and also leaning very heavy on stereotypes about sexuality and women. And oh, how gendered that, stereotypes, Gendered stereotypes, yeah. as mm -hmm. well as very Hollywood or storybook romantic stories. But even outside of demisexuality, with, within the broader ace spectrum, I feel like a lot of aces have had a moment where they've realized oh, I am actually experiencing things differently than everyone else. I, yes. thought, I thought everyone else was just exaggerating or joking or that we were actually on the same page here, but no, they actually feel very different about things. That's honestly the same way with not even just sexual or romantic attraction or orientations. It's... Anything that is so personal to you that has just always been this way, you sort of by default assume that it's normal and other people are also experiencing the same thing until you're proven otherwise by and, time and time again. And, until you get called out by a TikTok. <laughs> and until you get called out by a TikTok. <laughs> so for context, right before we sat down to record this, I pulled up a TikTok of a girl with autism who's like my autistic ass every time I'm standing. And it was just her putting up these like T-Rex arms. If, if you know, you know, <laughs> to the beat of a song. And I, I had to put that in front of Royce's face to be like, look at you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So for, for me, for example, one of my earliest examples of this was actually one of the symptoms of my disability before I actually had a diagnosis, before I understood myself to be a disabled person, was a lot of the, like, the weird little party tricks I could do with my hypermobile fingers and my hands and my overextending elbows. Like, I just thought that was normal. This is just how people's joints function. But then you move a little oddly and someone gets a little grossed out and they're like, oh, what did you do? How did you do that? And then you start doing it for everyone and they realize like, oh, 
look at these weird things you can do with all your joints. So it's like, no one ever thinks things about them are weird until society tells you they're weird. <laughs> and that's what being queer is, right? Like, in a perfect world, free from bigotry, where people had the freedom to just live the life that they felt most fulfilled in, none of this would be weird. We wouldn't necessarily need labels or pride because we could just be and we could just exist. But the reason why we need pride, the reason why we have queer communities and why we have these labels and this vocabulary to describe it is because of the fact that we do experience things differently from what the society we've grown up in tells us we should be feeling and how we should be experiencing it. And demisexual does have certain unique challenges in that regard. And some of them, as you mentioned, are very gendered. And everyone's going to have their own different experience. Some people will live in an area or be surrounded with community where maybe it's a little more obvious that not everybody is demisexual. But you, you hear a lot of demisexual women say, you know, I did just think that this is how women are because of various things that you're told. Because the, the, the very, very gendered stereotype is, you know, men are just horn dogs. They, uh, boys only want one thing, and and they just want to get in your pants. And But, like, women want a romantic relationship, and they want to take it slow, and they, they don't just want to have sex. They, they want to find their future spouse and have a love story kind of a thing. But a, a lot of that cultural preconception can sort of be traced back to, in some ways, purity culture. I don't want to say that it is the same because it's not. But a lot of people have sort of normalized the like, you know, saving yourself for marriage kind of a thing, or saving yourself for the right person. And that's where you get a lot of harmful misconceptions because someone might say, you know, I'm demisexual and people will be like, oh, well, that's basically just you're saving yourself for marriage. N no, it's not the same thing. It's the way in which people who are demisexual relate to sexual attraction. I mean, the, the same miscomparison could be attributed to the idea of asexuality and celibacy. Yes, it's, exactly. It's a, a practice versus an orientation. Yeah, because demisexuality isn't a choice. It is the way people experience attraction. And so the, the answer to this letter back when it was published in January of 2014, the author either already knew or at least Googled it <laughs> because she not incorrectly, says a demisexual is most commonly defined as a person who does not experience sexual attraction unless they first form a strong emotional connection. Which that is probably the most common definition that I, I see floating around even to this day. Some people will sort of conceptualize it as there is a type of primary attraction and a type of secondary attraction, where a primary attraction would be like immediately readily available information. You know, how does the person look aesthetically? How, what can you take in with your senses? How do they smell? What do they look like? What is their attitude? How do they move? How do they carry themselves? And are you able to actually become attracted to them based on that readily available information is, is how some people might conceptualize primary attraction. 
Secondary attraction would be more like you have gotten to know the person. You actually know more intimate details about their life. You know how they how they interact with you, how they interact with the world. You can kind of learn the more like beautiful on the inside type things. And and that could be a, a secondary attraction. You're attracted to who they are as a person, not what is necessarily sensual or aesthetic or immediately available if you just saw someone across the room, for example, or saw someone on television. And the people who conceptualize it in this way will say, you know, as a demisexual person, I do not experience primary sexual attraction whatsoever. I only experience in certain situations or in rare or conditional situations, secondary attraction after I have developed a bond with someone. And this author goes on to say like, yeah, and sure, that's a thing, as in some people feel that way and it's perfectly normal, but no, not everyone requires emotional connection to feel sexual attraction. Some people can feel very attracted to someone who they feel only a little emotionally in tuned with. Some people prefer to have casual sex without any emotional connection at all. Some people catch the merest glimpse of Channing Tatum and feel like their undergarments are about to burst into flame. Yes. <laughs> I think the author just proved that not everyone is demisexual. <laughs> One would think, one would think. <laughs> See, I'm so asexual, I, I cannot even fathom that. There is nothing about my experience that can in any way help me relate to <laughs> those latter examples. Here's where I think even in this first article, the author starts to wander astray. She says, and even among those who require or at least prefer serious emotional intimacy to want or enjoy sex, some will also end up feeling differently as they get older and grow more comfortable with the idea of having sex without an emotional safety net. That is way too close to, that's just a phase <laughs> for me. <laughs> She goes on a little bit to say things that outside of the context of the rest of it aren't incorrect or wrong. For example, she's saying, like, until recently terms like demisexual or panromantic to describe sexual proclivities weren't a thing, and that the current generation of teens and 20-somethings, etc., etc., have created a whole new vocabulary to explain their sexual identities. I mean, that's true. The phrases themselves are new. That doesn't mean the orientation is new. But the author even here admits that lately people have started to talk about this more in depth because previously it was socially unacceptable to be anything but straight and frowned upon. And But lately, sex and sexuality have become just another venue in which you can safely express and explore who you are. And she even says, and of course, being a teenager is, like, part of that is figuring yourself out. That on its own, <laughs> removed from the rest I don't have an issue with. But she starts to wrap it up by saying, that said, because all this sexual labeling has come about as a direct result of greater visibility of LGBT and queer folks, it is important to think about the implications and usefulness of any labels you might adopt. And personally, I think that, quote, demisexuality is a label that requires more thought than most. For one thing, this is a word that describes your sexuality. It is not a sexual orientation. 
and it doesn't have a public component the way sexual orientation does. The only people who ever need to know about it, or to whom it could possibly matter, are people you might be romantically slash sexually involved with. And if you're going to use the word, it should be with the understanding that public declarations about your sexuality are not necessary or always necessarily appropriate. So they are saying that anything other than the gender orientation, like the person that you're going to be seen in public with, is TMI. That's basically what she's saying here in this instance. Which would include all oriented aces. Which, yes, correct. Which also tells me that this person just, like, fundamentally does not understand the usefulness of labels. Because immediately this tells me that she thinks labels are for the purpose of finding a partner. Because she's saying, well, it's not telling people publicly available in information. It's not helpful. Like, they don't need to know this unless you're already so, so many steps into a relationship with someone. But it, it really does, because this is how you relate to another person. Just because demisexual on its own doesn't necessarily say, oh, I'm attracted to women, I'm attracted to men, or any variations thereupon. It's still telling you how you can or might relate sexually to someone. And that is important information if you are going to explore a relationship in any facet. But also, I don't think labels should be for the sole purpose of, like, marketing your sexual or romantic availability. <laughs> A gay person is still gay even if they aren't actively seeking a relationship. That's still an important part of who they are, right? <laughs> like, And that is why some people who are demisexual might put a sort of a split attraction modifier on top of it, and they might say, I'm homoromantic demisexual. So there's, they are still using that romantic orientation aspect to sort of explain their orientation toward gender, but not everyone even relates to gender. <laughs> and I think that's one of the biggest flaws about the current state of LGBT vocabulary is that so much of it is based around a binary concept of gender. Because we have homo-hetero, we have bi and pan, but there are still very few widely adopted labels for people who are non-binary, for people who are agender, who fall outside of those things. So here's where the author doubles down and says, Particularly, you should avoid, like the plague, any notion of, quote, coming out as demisexual. Are you kidding me? Because, she says, it appropriates the language and cheapens the struggle of LGBT people who have faced persecution, discrimination, and an ongoing battle just to be treated like human beings. Okay, so more of the aces don't face discrimination. Yes. <laughs> Our label should just be avoided like the plague. Yeah, you should avoid, like, the plague, any notion of coming out. That is, like, the most disgusting thing you could possibly say to any queer teenager. It is utterly repulsive. Like, you right now are actively trying to 
suppress a part (laughs) of this teenager who is coming to you and seeking advice while you're saying you're not actually discriminated against. And like, I'm not going to go fully into all the ways aces or particularly demisexual people might be oppressed because I think we have already covered that time and time again on this podcast. You can, you can go back and listen to some of our previous episodes on the matter and we'll no doubt talk about it again, but we've hardly even scratched the surface of this latest article that came out. So we'll be here all day if we talk about all of those ins and outs, but. That's also, we just, we've got to stop playing the oppression Olympics, you guys. We've, we've got to stop. <laughs> we've, we've got to stop. This is also just a situation where people just won't believe it unless they see it, but they don't have enough curiosity or empathy to try to find it and to try to understand. So she wraps up this initial advice column by saying, I know this is a lot to think about, and some of it may feel like I'm telling you not to call yourself, quote, demisexual. That's the thing, too. She uses a quote every single time she types the word demisexual. That is so passive aggressive, and I hate it. (laughs) I know, I'm I'm not telling you not to call yourself, quote, demisexual. Like, I, I don't like it. It's so icky. But I promise you that's not the point. You can use the word if you want to, if it's helpful to you, and as long as it makes sense to do so. The point is only to be thoughtful about why you're using it, to be considerate when you use it, and to be aware that the labels you apply to yourself now won't necessarily stick with you forever. And like, I don't like the way that advice is used in this, because with the already very clearly looking down on demisexuality not respecting it as a real orientation. She's she's very much using it as this is just a phase. Like, it might feel good now, but you're gonna grow out of it. This isn't gonna be this way forever. And that's not a good way to use that. I do think there is something to be said about, you know, sexuality can change and evolve, and it can be a very fluid thing for some people. But talking about the ways in which sexuality can be fluid and treating it as a phase that you're going to grow out of are two very different ways to have that conversation. So to return to our latest article here, she claims to know where the term for demisexual first popped up without citing the source at all, which gotta love that. The term originated on a role-playing forum back in the early noughties where a teenage girl assigned it to one of her fictional characters. Mmm, citation needed. Citation needed. Which which role-playing forum? How do you know it was a teenage girl if it was a role-playing forum? And then said, but after it migrated to Tumblr in 2011, it was adopted in earnest by extremely young and terminally online users who collected identity markers like they were baseball cards. What was the year used? When it migrated to Tumblr, it was 2011. Okay. Did you look this up? Did you find a better source? I mean, it's been my understanding that the word demisexual has been used on Avon since 2006. I know I had a conversation with someone who was Demi on OkCupid probably around 2012. They were older than I was. I think they were late 20s, early 30s to just push back on the the teen part of this. (laughs) The teen part of it. No, I can't remember if they expressed any interest in TTRPGs, but... (laughs) 
But there's another little data point. I assume, like with a lot of areas of the ACE spectrum, it goes back further than Tumblr. Yes. Well, and a lot of these terms, like I, I don't, she doesn't even say which role-playing forum this was supposed to be. So it's not linking anywhere. I don't know where she got this information. But demisexual was discussed on Avon in 2006. And the reason why there was a need for a term like that to develop was because there were people who found themselves on Avon who did not feel completely allosexual. They related to many parts of the asexual experience, but they were also admitting that there were some rare or conditional situations where they did experience sexual attraction, but their relationship to sexual attraction was distinctly different from people who are just allosexual beings. And therefore, their experience was also a little different from people who are asexual more on the side of the spectrum, like where I am, where I'm like, I just don't experience it, period, at all. So they wanted to find a word to bridge the gap. And that's where we get the gray area. Some people, some people specifically like demisexual as a term. Some people will say, you know, I'm gray sexual or I'm a gray ace because it is, it's, own type of experience. And if you don't have a word, it can be very difficult to find community and to relate to others. So people talk about new words coming up as if like, it's just some flippant thing. People are just making up words all over the place because they want to feel special. But the it, it's because there's a gap in the language <laughs> that needs to be filled. You know, if this was some capitalist tech startup founder with a new business saying, I'm filling a gap in the market. I've noticed a gap here and my product is going to fill it. People would be, you know, throwing investor dollars at him and calling him a genius. <laughs> but because it's a word, it's just a determinately online kids who, who don't know what the real world is like. If it was part of his tech startup venture, the word would also have fewer vowels in it. <laughs> And so this article talks about how outside of Tumblr, everyone else was skeptical about this new term in particular. And it's like, this is also ignoring the places where demisexual people found each other outside of Tumblr. I know a lot of people on the A spectrum did find each other on Tumblr, but we did have forums like Avon, where a lot of this language developed in the first place. Like you said, you found someone on a dating site who was potentially 30 in, in 2012 and was using the label. Like, they're, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. She says, but if the whole thing seemed frankly silly and okay snowflakey, it also seemed pretty harmless. Which, like... <laughs> Why are you coming so hard for it if you actually think it's harmless? Why even say that? You clearly don't think it's harmless. You very clearly don't think that. <laughs> because for me, if there's something I don't understand, or if I come across a new term, a new identity, even a new interest, just like a hobby or someone really likes something that I just don't understand the appeal of, I always try to approach it from a sense of curiosity. 
And even if I myself am not going to fully be able to relate to it, I want to know what it is that makes that important to this person or this group of people. And like, if you aren't going to approach something from a, from a place of curiosity like that, you could just ignore it. That's what I don't get from people like this. Why do you care so much? She goes on to say, gender and sexuality were just the latest lens through which young people were trying to understand their place in the world, again with the quotes, quote, demisexuality, was to 2013 what being a little goth curious was for a teen in 1995, more or less. Goth curious? <laughs> it's, I think, I, I just, I think I'm that's trying like, to envision goth curious, like, how... How do you not go all in? <laughs> I think that's like there there are lifelong goths. There is a gothic subculture that is loud and proud and strong and I have friends twice my age who have been goth since before I was born and it's I think goth curious is almost Trying to go back to the, like, this is just a phase. Like, there are undoubtedly, like, some people who might have, like, a tiny little goth phase. Like, rebelling against your parents for a short period of time. But then you find it doesn't work for you and you don't keep up with the subculture. You don't engage with the community. You don't find the music. Things like that. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. You can, you can try on different clothes and see what fits you. That is okay. <laughs> but like, it's just the like, comparing goth curious to a sexual orientation. <laughs> Which, I mean, maybe this is also offensive to goths. Is she also saying that there aren't lifelong goths? <laughs> like there are no lifelong demisexuals and there are no lifelong goths? I beg to differ. I also know demisexual people in their 50s and above. <laughs> like, why, why we have this obsession with making things a young generational trend, I do not know. But just, just the tone of this whole thing, she goes on to say, except that with so much of life happening online, this identity, meaning demisexuality, was less about how you moved through the world than about finding just the right flag to affix to your social media profile. Which demisexuality is all about how, how you move through the world, how, how you relate to sexuality, and I, I don't understand how someone else can care this much, but still not actually care enough to try to understand. But unlike shopping at Claire's Accessories, which, is that where the goth curious were shopping in 1995? <laughs> at Claire's? Is that pre-Hot Topic? <laughs> I mean, it was pre-Hot Topic, but not... Not relevant to 95, like Hot Topic existed in 95. It was founded in 89, so... But unlike shopping at Claire's accessories, demisexuality didn't stay a teenage conceit. A combination of creeping identitarianism in mainstream culture, plus a general obsession with, every word here is capitalized, what the youths are into eventually made the concept irresistible to adult millennial women. 
is what the youths are into an alternate title of this person's like column their, I, their general writing topic i would love like a what the youths are into but actually from a place of curiosity where it's not just like a crotchety person of, of an elder generation and like i don't think this author is particularly old either like i don't know if she's a millennial i don't know if she's gen x uh, we can look it up in a minute if we have to, but like, it's just steeped in juvenilia and just a, a contempt <laughs> toward younger people, which I don't understand. But imagine how precious it would be if you just had like a 90 year old, like grandma or grandpa type who genuinely like loved the youngest adult generation and like was so curious and fascinated by them that they were just like jumping into the the millennial culture, the Gen Z culture. I, I almost want that to be like a, a podcast or a video series. <laughs> I think that would be precious if it's from a place of curiosity and not from a place of contempt. Now we're gonna spend some time scrolling through some ticking talks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd I'd almost love it to be like a type of investigative uh, journalism too, like Let's find out exactly why this is so appealing to <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that's how I go about things when I learn of a new hobby or interest or identity that I don't know. I'm like, let's let's go full investigation here. Let's let's find the appeal. What is it that makes these people tick? But also the this made it irresistible to adult millennial women. Again, branding demisexuality just a woman thing. First of all, throughout the entire A spectrum, we as a community are way more likely to just reject the concepts of gender or to play with the concepts of gender or to fall outside of the binary of gender. Statistically, we are way more likely. <laughs> but also, the user who first used the word demisexual on Avon in 2006 was a guy. That was not a woman. The word demisexual, as far as I know, if anyone else has seen it pop up pre-2006, let me know. But my understanding is that that term was coined by a guy on Avon. So she cites an article that was posted on ExoJane in 2015. Someone who was saying, it happened to me, I'm a demisexual, and... I don't have much of an interest going in to read that at this particular moment because we have just so much more nonsense from this author, but she cites that essay as a means of saying like, oh, it was meant, it was met with ridicule and people, the obvious reasons like they want to be oppressed so bad. Honestly, I'm, I'm so sick of that one sentence. Everyone who says that one sentence still to this day thinks they're saying something revelatory and brilliant and a witty observation about the state of the world these days. You are not unique. People have been saying that exact same thing for years. I mean, it's basically a, a twist on hypochondria. Hmm. Which is very interesting because there are a lot of ableist undertones to that as well. There are a lot of invisible disabilities. There are a lot of hard-to-diagnose or underdiagnosed 
illnesses or chronic illness that is another thing where people don't see it, they don't believe it, and people will just say like, oh, you're faking it for attention, or that's not real. And if we go back through the history of all sexual orientations, or really anything that, any sort of human experiences that diverges from the norm or the average, there has been a point in history where that has been medicalized or pathologized. Absolutely, yes. I, I think you can sum it up with that sentiment. It's that to be different is to be wrong somehow, and people make up things that are wrong with them for attention. I think it goes back to misconceptions of hypochondria. Yep. I see no difference. You you hit the nail on the head there. But there was something about the way the essay in question lamented, quote, the many struggles of living in such a sexually charged culture that spoke to the anxieties of digital natives trying to navigate a post-sexual revolution dating scene. Hookup culture, dating apps, the endless sorting and filtering of potential suitors in a manner that resembled online shopping more than human connection, it's no surprise that people struggled in this system, jumped on a term, a hardwired identity that offered an explanation as to why. The young women who adopted a demisexual label as a means of opting out were less angry than their closest analog, the young male incel, but both shared a sense that the system was broken. That was a twist I wasn't expecting. <laughs> yup! Incels, but women and not as angry. So one thing I've been tired of for a long time is all of the, I guess, just snark or general neg negativity to the aspect of dating online because it's different than pre-internet meeting through friends or in a workplace or walking into some stranger. Mm -hmm. I feel like certain people have consistently dunked on the aspect of dating online. And a lot of people who are on dating sites will, their entire bio would be like, this is stupid, I hate this. <laughs> and I mean, that's a red flag if, if there is one. Like, clearly they're not taking this seriously. But I just don't get belittling an idea that you clearly don't understand. Which this one, in, in this case, she's almost not necessarily attacking online dating. She's attacking people who can't handle online dating. Although she's just assuming that that's the case without those people actually saying that. There was a line about approaching dating like you're shopping mm, yeah, instead, of, instead of something with actual like human connection. And that's that's belittling. The same thing goes into like... You can have a very in-depth personal conversation with someone remotely through yes. words. I mean, this person wrote an advice column, and if they are incapable of connecting with people through text, they should not have been in that position. Yep. <laughs> it's just everything about this is steeped in snark, right? Like, she's being snarky to online dating, but simultaneously being snarky to people she perceives as not being able to effectively online date. Yeah, I, I think the underlying theme that's that's bugging me is person doesn't understand something. So instead of trying to understand it, they take the first thought of what could be wrong with the situation that comes to mind and goes, that must be what's going on here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> clearly, clearly, if they can't 
handle online dating. They're manifesting an entire identity and trying to find a culture around it as a coping mechanism. Which yes. makes it makes no sense. Which everything about this is holier than thou, right? It's I know more than you because you're listening to what these people are saying and you're saying, I don't believe you. Actually, you have this problem. <laughs> and it's like, why can't you just meet people where they are? If they're telling you something about themselves, even if, because sure, there there's something to be said about how nobody is as self-aware as they think they are. <laughs> like, that's just, that's the case of it. But even if you're saying like, oh, maybe this person's lacking some self-awareness, if they're telling you something about themselves, that is important to them for some reason. And you're just choosing to ignore it and not believe them and make up all these different stories in your head. You're making up stories about these people that you don't know, which is just weird. And what kind of person does that? <laughs> Someone who writes an advice column. <laughs> Well, the thing is, so if you're taking a few paragraphs and trying to construct a person around it, chances are you're filling in the gaps with a lot of projections. Mm. Because what else do you have? What mm. else do you have to come off of to fill in the, that information? So she, she wraps up this thought by saying, If male incels were made miserable by the specter of the sex they wanted but couldn't have, the demisexuals were perhaps equally tormented by the pressure to want. Full stop. I can tell that they thought that was a good line, but I'm not even sure what they're trying to say. <laughs> it, it's, it's not nearly as astute as I think she thinks it is. <laughs> So I think she's saying that demisexuals are tormented by desire. She says the pressure to want, but in the context of demisexuality, I think she's talking about sexual attraction and sexual desire. But I don't see that as being equal, even if you take her word for it and try to see what she's saying. Male incels are miserable by the specter of the sex they want but couldn't have then demisexuals are equally tormented by the pressure to want. Who's, who's putting the pressure on them? What was the title of this article? <laughs> demisexuals are scared of sex. So, okay, so this is why I was confused. Because tormented by the pressure to want actually sounded sort of validating to aces. Like, it's the pressure to want something that you don't actually feel that is traumatizing. But given the article... That, that's the, the what title, I'm saying, because it's being like... afraid of sex, it sounds like the author is saying... So you admit it. There, there is a pressure to want. <laughs> well, it sounds like what they were trying to say with that sentence that was cut off too short, that this person does feel a desire, and they don't know how to, I guess, choose or direct it in, in like, an online body marketplace, as it was described. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, this one's past we'll, me. We'll we'll read on. We'll 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 get the full list picture here. <laughs> Seven years after that exogene essay, demisexuality remains a contested notion, but a far more visible one. In everything from beer marketing to dating guides, as with this recent dispatch from the dating app Hinge, and it links to an article on Hinge called "I'm Demisexuality." Or, I am demisexuality. I am demisexuality. 
I'm demisexual. What's the best way to set expectations around waiting to get sexual? Which I think is a very valid question in the modern dating landscape. Although the only people here that are cited, by the way, not women. <laughs> Which is, again, the obsession with making this a thing that young millennial women are doing. And yet the places you're linking to... Aside from that one ExoJane article from 2015, it's it's not even women you're linking to. So you're just hoping people take your word for it without citing things properly or adding any level of nuance. Yeah, they they had an, an internal thesis, an idea of how this all works, and actual evidence be damned. That's the way the world is. Yes. <laughs> By the way, you said that was Hinge? It was Hinge, yes. I think Hinge is the dating site that I got banned on when I tried to do dating site research. <laughs> That's probably for the best. <laughs> they did their job. Yeah, by the way, little little sneak preview. We might be doing an episode about online dating as an asexual, featuring a variety of dating apps. Which is also just so interesting because... Like I said, when you're actually trying to state facts, like this is where the word demisexual came from, there's not a citation in sight. There's not a name for a place that's even Googleable. But then you link to an advice column on Hinge, which is fine. But then you link to, it was, um, what was that line? From beer marketing. Demisexuality remains a contested notion, but far more visible in everything from beer marketing. And that links to an also exceptionally snarky opinion article on The Guardian from 2019 called What Have Budweiser's Demisexual Drinking Cups Got to Do with Pride? Which isn't even specifically demisexual. All it does is cite... A Budweiser Pride in London cup that has the stripes of the asexual pride flag. It's like the black, gray, white, purple. And in a Twitter post where they're showing the picture of this asexual cup, they go down like, oh, this is what the different stripes mean. And they mention that the gray stripe on the flag is for gray asexuals. And this includes demisexuals. So the cup itself is not specifically demisexual, but the author of this incredibly snarky op-ed just really digs into the demisexual, saying, saying like, oh, that's not the only cup. There are eight more cups and about eight million more colors to go, but let's just stop there for a second so I can shake my homosexual head in confusion. Perhaps I am overlooking the widespread persecution of demisexuals and gray asexuals in society. Perhaps, though, I am being cynical. Yes, you are. Yes to all of these things. <laughs> and it's like, you found a snarky article that name-dropped demisexual and for some reason fixated on demisexual when the cup isn't even the demisexual pride flag. The demisexual pride flag that's been most frequently adopted still uses the colors of the asexual pride flag, but it's three stripes and, and a triangle on the side. And that's not what the cup is, even. Someone just got so upset that Budweiser so much as mentioned gray asexuals and so much as mentioned demisexuals in a pride campaign when discussing asexuality as a spectrum. That it's like, technically not even correct that 
demisexuality is visible in beer marketing. Because <laughs> where? Show, show me where. But she uses this for some reason to claim that demisexual visibility seems to have less to do with grassroots shift in human sexuality and more to do with its corporate profitability. Name one person who is profiting wildly off of demisexuality. In a world of identity-driven marketing, a massive piece of the pie awaited any advertiser who figured out how to make young, male-attracted women feel special and seen. And of course, not quite heterosexual, thus saving them from the curse of being just another basic cishet bitch. I'm really curious if basic white cis women are really concerned about being basic white cishet women. I think that part <laughs> of the whole deal with being basic is that you probably don't understand that you're basic. <laughs> or you do and you own it, usually. From from what I've gathered on social media, the, the basic cishet white women who really own who they are and just brand their social media accordingly, tend to profit a lot more than anybody who's demisexual. <laughs> well, yeah, their, their market is the majority. Yeah. Like, if basic wouldn't... If basic wasn't the majority, it would not be called basic. Yeah. It would be some sort of abnormality. It would be weird or eccentric. Or queer. But yeah, it's, it's so weird, because uh, also, like... Citation needed again. What is this massive piece of the pie? And there, there's did something... They, did they contact Budweiser to ask about their revenue after this ad? Yes. <laughs> how much money did you make off of that how, picture of an asexual cup? How many requests did you get <laughs> for people wanting to purchase demisexual branded cups? Considering the best estimate for aces in general that I've seen so far is like 2% of the population, and demisexuals would be a fraction of that, I'm gonna say most advertising companies aren't going to spend much time on that. Hell, it's hard enough to get companies to follow basic accessibility measures to hit whatever percentage of the population have accessibility concerns. Mm, yup, there's that. But it's it's just so sure there is something to be said about like rainbow marketing and rainbow washing and all these companies that jump on board during Pride Month and do try to profit off of that. There's an there's an argument there. But why are you attacking the actual queer people that have nothing to do with those companies making that decision? And usually those criticisms of the, the, the rainbow washing, the pride washing is because of the fact that they'll pretend to be all buddy buddy with you to, to make a buck off of, you know, pride themed merchandise during pride month, but then they'll be like, spending a lot of money lobbying politicians that are actively making legislation that harms us. And it's like very false allyship, very performative. Like that's, that's the critique. <laughs> Plus look at how many random people they really inexplicably piss off by putting an ace flag on something. Oh yeah. In fact, if you Google like Budweiser asexual, like 
you're getting a, a spectator article. Go figure. That's where our last article we covered was from. But you'll you'll get all these articles talking about Budweiser's asexual ad didn't go over well on Twitter. Budweiser UK's pride campaign raises flags and not just rainbow ones. <laughs> like you're getting all these snarky articles. Like most people don't like when companies do this. So. <laughs> At the same time, the allure of demisexuality as a label clearly reveals something about the inadequacies of the contemporary dating landscape, particularly as experienced by young women. Again, the young women. <laughs> Taking it slow, assessing your feelings, and perhaps requiring a commitment before sex enters the picture, the tenets of demisexuality are fundamentally conservative and more or less indistinguishable from the advice your grandmother would have given you about when and whether to have sex. But affixing the demisexual label dresses up these traditional values as a form of queerness, making them not just more palatable to younger folks, but rhetorically unassailable. I don't want to have sex unless we're emotionally connected is a statement open to criticism. Is it? Demisexuality is an identity that cannot be questioned. But is it? <laughs> That's like, I want to say this is rape culture. <laughs> oh, well. Was the line, the idea that you don't want to have sex can be called into question? I don't want to have sex unless we're emotionally connected is a statement open to criticism. No. No. <laughs> Demisexual or not, that, that sounds like a boundary. That, that sounds like... That is a consent violation. That is, yes! There, there's nothing open to criticism about that statement in any context. Period. To, uh, full stop. <laughs> and this is why we're, we're not at over an hour into this at this point, we're not going to make this a conversation fully on sex positivity, although we're gonna put a pin in that because I want to talk about sex positivity. I want to have a really brutally honest conversation about sex positivity. That's gonna be a whole episode, I assume. It's gonna be an episode and a half. <laughs> the first one and a half parter. <laughs> yeah. You'll get a special episode that's half length on Saturday. <laughs> So, the thing is, I'd venture to guess that this author fancies herself sex positive, and I'd venture to guess a lot of people, especially on the A-spectrum, especially demisexual, other queer folks reading this, are probably going to say, that's not what being sex positive is, because sex positive is about consent, and what you're saying is calling into question some fundamental, like, truths that we must respect about consent. But... Saying that you are fundamentally conservative for just the way you experience attraction is so warped because that's also, again, you're turning this into an ideation, a choice, a way you choose how to have sex with someone as opposed to the way you experience attraction because there are demisexual people who might not be particularly sex favorable, and even if they do experience an emotional connection with someone, that isn't going to automatically mean, oh, well, you're allosexual now. Like, they're, they're 
connection to sexuality is going to be different because they're demisexual and that's a real thing. <laughs> what a concept. But there are people who do see sex positivity as something that I cannot relate to. And sex positivity is one of those things that has been so ingrained in feminism that it has made it very difficult to critique. Because if you critique sex positivity, or at least certain forms of sex positivity, or the way some people use it, well, now you're just not being feminist. That's not very feminist of you now, is it? <laughs> and when it's someone like this saying, you can criticize someone for saying, I don't want to have sex unless we're emotionally connected, because that's a fundamentally conservative view. Well, that's not very progressive of you. That's not very feminist of you. Where's the sexual liberation? And because it's become so ingrained in feminism and consent and sex education, which like consent we're all for, sex education we're all for, I don't think it needs the aggressively positive spin that some people put on it. And that's why I almost need other people to explain to me exactly what you mean by sex positivity if you say I'm sex positive. Because not everyone uses it the same way. And some people use it in a way that does not serve me and does not serve a majority of asexuals. And it's hard to say that because then people will be like, don't you believe in consent? Don't you believe in sex education? Like, I do believe in those things, but that's not how everyone's using this. Yeah, the, the plus sign is overloaded. Positive does not mean more. But I think the nuances of that are for another day. Well, because Wikipedia, for example, sex positivity is an attitude toward human sexuality that regards all consensual sexual activities as fundamentally healthy and pleasurable, encouraging sexual pleasure and experimentation. I guess I agree with that if you take it a little more neutral. Like, if someone's encouraging me to experiment with sex, I'm just going to be like, no. <laughs> If you want to, yeah. I think that is written as a reaction to traditional conservatism. Yes. And it doesn't take the idea that not wanting to have sex is a part of the human experience as well into account. Exactly, because it's erasing asexuality as a valid way to be. And that's where you get really reactionary nonsense like this, because... A lot of people use sex positivity and the sexual liberation as an opposition to conservatism. So therefore, if people who utilize sex positivity in this way deem that any way that you are behaving appears, even at a surface level, to be a little conservative, they're, they're taking this as something that needs to be fought because they are in opposition to it. So... This person is using what they see as sex positivity to oppose demisexuality. And that is so monumentally fucked up. But that is exactly what is happening here. The article continues, This was clearly part of the allure for the, for the teens who first gravitated toward the term. Demisexual may have been a snowflakey word, but there was safety in it, especially if you were young, inexperienced, and a little afraid of sex. The kids who wrote into my advice column not only constructed elaborate identities around the type of sex they didn't want to have, but also an elaborate consent framework 
in which any negotiation of one's sexual boundaries constituted a violation of consent. The notion of pushing the limits of one's own comfort in the spirit of experimentation, let alone for the sake of a partner's pleasure, was horrifying to them, even if that meant, to use a provocative example, letting young men off the hook for being serial non-reciprocators of oral sex. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, did that, you just make that story up in your head? Th or? That, that sounds like something you're very passionate about. Well, yeah, unreciprocated oral sex isn't very feminist. <laughs> I just, I <laughs> We've talked before about how, like, sex between people is, is a form of play. It's, it's something that you do for mutual enjoyment. If someone doesn't like doing something, why would you make them do something that they don't enjoy? Yes! Like, find something else. Find something you both like. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's also so weird because this is also clearly someone who has never spent any time in asexual or demisexual spaces. Because, first of all, like, why are you derogatorily saying they created an elaborate consent framework? Like, consent is good, actually. <laughs> but, but also... The notion of pushing the limits of one's own comfort in the spirit of experimentation, which that experimentation word I pulled directly off of the Wikipedia for sex positivity encourages experimentation. Well, that's the line that aces get all the time. That's like, well, how do you know you don't like it if you haven't tried? Yes, exactly. Which I think is just so weird. Even if you took sex off the table and said anything, if someone like very specifically does not want to do something that is not required for them to live and exist, why is your reaction to try to make them do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, can, you can circumvent that very quickly if you actually challenge someone on it. Like, if it's a, if it's a straight person, the obvious quick answer is, well, have you tried to have sex with someone of the same gender? If you want to throw sex out of the equation, how do I know that I wouldn't like skydiving? Well, if I go four rungs up on a ladder, I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> four? Is that is that your magic number? <laughs> I can do three. <laughs> well, and, and then to say, like, to push the limits of your own comfort for the sake of a partner's pleasure was horrifying to them. That is something that is so heavily discussed in asexual spaces. And the fact that this person doesn't know it tells me that, like, I don't know why you think you're an expert on this or why you have a valid opinion to be talking about this, but the conversation of I am asexual or I'm on the ace spectrum and I either have or I might acquire an allosexual partner and how do we communicate boundaries and how do we negotiate and there are plenty of ace people who do have sex for their partner's pleasure almost exclusively and that's not a bad thing for those people because that is within the realm of their own safety and their own willingness to do something but not every ace person is going to be that way because we do all have different boundaries but Talking about still having sex with an aloe partner is such a huge ongoing conversation in the ace community. We talk about that all the time. All the time. So, 
She goes on to say, and she doesn't link to this, so I, I can't read the article in question, but this is apparently from the advice column again. When I suggested in one such scenario that a couple in a committed relationship might revisit and revise their boundaries and even compromise them in the name of mutual satisfaction, the response was outrage. To these teenagers, a no in one context was meant to be understood as a no forever, and any further discussion or negotiation was, if not rape, then somewhere on the same spectrum. Yes. <laughs> yes! You figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> she just doesn't like it. Because that's not very sex positive. That's not very feminist. Where's the experimentation? Where's the eroticism? Where is the forcible experimentation? <laughs> Identifying as demisexual may offer a coveted membership in the queer community. Queer is in quotes, by the way. But it does nothing to forestall the consensual but not desired encounters that so many young women find themselves engaging in. Calling membership in a marginalized community coveted... <laughs> it's extremely shows, warped. It shows such a distortion from reality. Yeah. <laughs> that is the truth. To posit the possibility of seduction of a no that becomes a yes is seen as akin to rape apologism. Say it with me. Yes! <laughs> I, it's utterly baffling. And this, uh, this is exactly the kind of thing we talk about when we talk about compulsory sexuality. We live in a world that does see sexuality as a compulsory thing. And asexuality challenges that in a way nothing else can compare to. And people who see this compulsory sexuality as something that they've conceptualized as good because they've put it under the umbrella of sex positivity, they put it under the umbrella of feminism and sexual liberation, they fail to see the issues with that and how it doesn't serve everyone. And it very quickly becomes rape culture. <laughs> We don't like to talk about the complex alchemy whereby indifference might give way to fondness, even lust, or how the flattering, exciting sense of one's own desirability can sometimes stand in so fully for desire itself that it's impossible to tell the difference. Kind of seems like the author has a specific kink <laughs> that, that they can't separate from their own ex personal human experience enough to actually relate to other people. I used the word projecting earlier. <laughs> yes, you did. That was probably correct, because this, this isn't even a kink. It doesn't even have to be a kink. This is just someone who sees sexuality as such a fundamentally good, inherent truth. And it's also talking about, like, your own desirability, like... Some people don't want to be desired. Some people might like that. That might be a stand-in for desire for you. You might be so thrilled at the concept of someone desiring you that that's, that's enough. That's enough for you to want to engage in some sort of sexual situation. But that's just not everyone's experience. And it's like you want people to have your experience. And that's just not how people work. <laughs> Because it's, it's not an insult to you. 
I I would like to consider myself, although I'm I'm constantly reevaluating this word every time I see nonsense like this. I would consider myself in the line of sex positivity where I'm like, good for you if that's how your sexuality works. Go forth and do with it what you will. As as long as it's consensual, but now I have some serious questions for this author in particular. <laughs> I mean, that's specifically why I mentioned kink, because this the way they are describing the way that they find social sexual interactions appealing is treading the line of a crossing of consent. And mm. if they are naturally submissively minded, he, yeah, it might be alluring to you. It could also be a little dangerous. <laughs> Well, that also, in the context of a kink scene, needs to be heavily discussed and negotiated and still needs to be done safely. Like, there are safe mechanisms in place for you to be able to explore that. But that would be too elaborate of a consent framework. <laughs> and these kids are making these elaborate consent frameworks, which is just so weird, because also the... The exciting sense of one's own desirability, like, if you want to play the part of a femme fatale and you just want to, you know, experience some type of arousal because of your own sexual attractiveness, go on and go forth, I guess. But, like, I don't want people to desire me sexually. I want to be able to wear a low-cut dress and not have people see that as a sexual thing. <laughs> I'd rather that be a purely aesthetic preference. But I happen to have a figure that a lot of people find to be very sexual regardless of what I'm wearing, and I can't stand that. <laughs> and she goes on to cite a short story called Cat Person. I'm not going to go into all the details of that. We'll We'll link it in the show notes if you want to read it, but... She says the protagonist of Cat Person doesn't want the man who wants her, but oh, the thrill of being wanted. And pulls the quote, imagining how excited he would be, how hungry and eager to impress her. She felt a twinge of desire pluck at her belly, as distinct and painful as the snap of an elastic band against her skin, which, is that what sexual attraction feels like? <laughs> Is, is that what that is? <laughs> that seems like such a weird descriptor. I've never heard anyone say the snap of an elastic band before. So I think we need, we need more <laughs> we need more descriptions. <laughs> we need we need more data points. But it's also like you have completely changed the conversation like we were discussing demisexuality and now you're discussing something that is distinctly not demisexuality you are like here's an unrelated story a short story of someone who doesn't want this person but she really likes feeling desired by this person and that's close enough and it's like that's not what demisexuality is like <laughs> you but it's that's gonna give the air of like demisexuals are missing something you're lacking you should be able to experience this and that's only so many steps removed from you are broken and you are wrong which is something that is all too common of a feeling and an experience in the a spectrum but instead of this instead of that specific situation 
Instead, we instruct young people that sexuality is mainly a matter of identity, one in which the main concern is choosing not a partner, but a label. Ooh, I called that when we, when we were reading the advice column and the way she was talking about labels. I distinctly said that she seems to be treating labels as a method of choosing a partner. That, that is exactly what she's doing here still so many years later. So your understanding of queer labels have, has not evolved. But nobody wants a label just to have a label. <laughs> that's, that's not what's happening here. But indeed, adopting a term like demisexuality is a way to sidestep the question of desire entirely, along with the fraught and frightening process of learning by experience what kind of sex you want, which inevitably requires stumbling uncomfortably against the kind you don't. But the result is less safe than it is strange. A funhouse mirror version of sexuality that has very little to do with the physical act itself, or the good things associated with it. And what's under the surface of this label? Not self-knowledge, but fear of intimacy, of heartbreak, and of being naked. Oh, okay. Yeah, the whole thing's kind of trash, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's not very good. I mean, this is clearly a person who believes that there is one way that humans are, and if you are saying that you're different than that, you're wrong. Yes. This is someone who's saying that sexuality is such an innate part of you that if you aren't experiencing it, you are willfully holding that part of you back. You are being conservative. You are not being sex positive. And it's it's just utterly repulsive. This this is also clearly someone who like I want to know how many times people have actually called you out for rape apologism because you put right in your article like, "Ah, oh, the no that becomes a yes is seen as akin to rape apologism." Like, yes. <laughs> what what ah is also is that what seduction is? Is seduction inherently turning a no into a yes? Because if that's what you actually think seduction is, then you need to throw the whole thing out. Now I'm not a sexual person, but I can only imagine there's a way to do seduction that isn't uh, rape. <laughs> it's just it's it's so utterly baffling to me. The entire article is trash. The entire mindset is trash. And the thing is, we we could have just ignored this. We could have just posted about it on social media. The reason why I want to cover these things and why we've covered a couple of other articles in the past is because I feel like we're just going to get more of these. <laughs> I feel like articles specifically at targeting asexuals, people on the asexual spectrum, is only going to increase. I think it's going to get a little worse before it gets a little better. Although this is pretty funny. <laughs> I wasn't going to do a whole deep dive into this writer, and we're not. We're, we're going to wrap it up here in a minute. But recently, she also put out an article called Why I Keep Getting Mistaken for a Conservative. Mistaken, huh? <laughs> I'm a lifelong liberal, but my team now thinks I'm the enemy. I think there's some serious self-awareness issues there. So yeah, to to be continued... <laughs> We'll talk more about 
sex positivity and how and why it does not always serve us. I think that's an important conversation to have because for as many things that are beneficial, like consent and like reproductive rights that often get molded into the sex positive movement, there are very much overly sexualized components of it that can be used to harm asexual people and the ace community. And I don't like it because even within the ace community, because everyone holds on to the consent and the reproductive rights and the feminism, we are so often forced to be like, I'm asexual, but I'm sex positive. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm asexual, but I'm sex positive. And it's like, I, I believe you too. I, I don't think anybody's saying that is incorrect, but I do think our ideas of sex positivity do not always line up with everybody's. Any, any of these big social movements, these ph philosophical movements, it's not one homogenous thing, right? There are so many different fractured communities that see it differently. <laughs> and I, I want to examine that a little critically. So we'll, we'll do that here in the future for our, what I say, one, one and a half episodes. <laughs> but until that time, uh, reach out to the demisexuals in your life. Tell them that they are awesome. Tell them that you love them. And we will talk to you all again next week.